Now turn with me this morning to the book of Philippians. <coughs> Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to read, probably, for the last time, the first 11 verses of this chapter. Philippians chapter 1. And we're reading, of course, from verse 1, reading from the authorized <coughs> version. Follow with me in your Bible. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work on you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Amen. We know that the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 to 11. The Apostle Paul says, In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory of and praise of God. And my theme today is entitled, A Pastor's Prayer for His People. Now remember this letter to the Philippian church was written by the Apostle Paul from his prison cell in Rome some nine or ten years after the church at Philippi had been established. And in prison, Paul faces an uncertain future. He awaits an unjust trial and could be executed by Nero's orders at any moment. It's a really terrible and harrowing experience. And yet in the jailhouse, he's not having a pity party with himself. In the jailhouse, he is thinking of the saints of God in Philippi. And he's thankful for every remembrance of them. He's thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. He is thankful that they have continued steadfastly in the gospel and remained true to Christ, 
despite living in a very hard, ungodly place like Philippi was. He is confident about the state of their spirituality. He's confident about their spiritual progress to maturity in their spiritual life. Look at the words of chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God had begun a good work in the hearts and lives of these people. This was a divine work, remember, of regeneration. This was a work of salvation. He talks about from the first day until now. And of course, that's a reference from the first day, a reference to the day that they were born again and received Jesus Christ by faith as Lord and Savior. And Paul is not only telling us that this is a divine work, but he's conscious that this is a definite developing work. For, for God's good work in the soul would continue and God in grace would bring it eventually to a state of perfection when the true believers were brought home to heaven and eternal glory. Now, now Paul has no doubts about this. There's no ifs or buts here. There, there's no maybes. He, he says, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all. In other words, it's right and proper for me to be confident of you. Because this is God's good work. This is God's great and gracious work in the soul. But I want you to notice Paul is not only thankful for these believers, but he also prayed for them. Now that's important. Paul's in prison. He's thinking of these believers. He's thanking God for them. But he also talks to God about them. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, and this I pray. He, he, he's thinking of what they needed at this time. You see, Paul just didn't sit back on the floor or on the bed and say, oh, God's doing a great work in the hearts and lives of the Philippian believers. So I'll just let God do what he wants in their lives and I let God get on with it. No, he, he actually prayed for them. He did it, I believe, out of love for them. Remember, he has them in his heart. He loves them in Christ and he prayed for them because he loved Christ and he was loyal to Christ and had a longing for them in Christ. It was true that God was doing a divine, gracious work in their soul. It was true that that work began the day they were saved. And yes, it was true that God would eventually perfect the work. But Paul still knew that he had a responsibility to pray for these believers and all of their spiritual and physical and material needs. You see, sometimes we hear the thought, oh, well, God is sovereign and um, God has begun a, a saving work in the hearts and lives of sinners and, and this is God's work and it's a great work and God's going to continue it to completion. So, so why bother to pray? Why not just let go and, and let God? I want to remind you tonight that God's sovereignty and human responsibility, as Spurgeon said, are like two parallel tracks. They run together. 
and there should never be a, an overemphasis on God's sovereignty to the detriment of human responsibility, and there should never be a, an underemphasis on the duty of man. Yes, salvation is God's work. Yes, it is God who saves and sanctifies and glorifies the sinner. Yes, God is sovereign. But remember, God is sovereign in the use of means. And one of God's means is the means of prayer. God uses prayer to accomplish much in our Christian lives. And Paul knew this in prison. And he's not spiritually careless. He's not complacent. He's not slack. He, he knows his responsibility as a wise pastor for these people. So, so he prays for these believers. And what we have here in Philippians chapter 1 verse 9 to 11 is a pastor's prayer for his people. Not just some of the people. Not, 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 not just the elders, but, but all the elders, the deacons, the husbands, the wives, the children, the babies. And of course... I want you to look with me. It says in verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. He's telling them there, I'm praying for you. And of course we believe he prayed lovingly because he loved Christ and he prayed um, daily and continually and, and he prayed joyfully, but he also prayed wisely. You see, it wasn't just, I'm praying for you. But if you look very carefully at verse 9, and this I pray. I want you to think of three things this morning. As you think of a pastor's prayer for his people, I want you to think of the specifics of Paul's prayer. He says, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. You see, I could say to you this morning, I'm praying for you. And I may be thinking of an aunt or an uncle of yours that are maybe uh, traveling somewhere out of the country or abroad. And I can, uh, uh, upon your request, commit them to God in prayer and ask God to keep them safe and bring them home safely. Maybe someone here has got a stressful family situation, uh, experiencing a, a bereavement. And that's very difficult, bereavement to cope with. Or maybe facing a, a, an illness or or. or, or Someone's going into hospital and they're going to face a, a surgery and, and you're burdened by that and you share that with me. Well, I can bring that need to God and I can ask God to help in that situation. Whatever the need is, physical or material, I can go to God and ask. But I want you to notice something here this morning, that Paul's prayer was different. You see, it wasn't just about a family member traveling abroad or it wasn't about somebody facing a stressful family situation or somebody having some trip to the doctors or the hospital or some other physical material need. It, it, it wasn't even praying about money for the church. And of course, you hear me doing that all the time. But Paul was specific. Look at his prayer. And this I pray. In other words, he's moved from general I'm praying for you. And I, I say that to many people. I'm praying for you. I, I mean that sincerely. And those of you who know me and have been with me in the prayer meeting know that, that that's genuine. But he says, and this I pray, what? 
that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Here's the details. This is what he actually prayed for. That your love may abound more and more. He requested an increasing love. He recognized the love they had. The love that they had was real and genuine. You see, they had a love for the Savior. They could sing, oh, how I love Jesus. They had a love for the scriptures. They could say with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. They had a love for the sanctuary of God. They, they, they met on the Sabbath. And I'm sure they met regularly and faithfully. They loved the saints. They loved the souls of men. They loved the preachers of the word of God. And Paul knew that. And yet he prays that your love, the love that you have to God and Christ and the gospel and the work of God and the scriptures and the preaching and the salvation of precious souls, I pray that that love that you have may abound more and more. In other words, that love that they have should be increasing, not decreasing. Our, our love should be growing and gaining, not growing thin and wearing out. He's praying that their love would abound more and more. He's requesting an increasing love. That word abound means a bubbling up or flowing like a spring. We could think of the word superabound. We, we, we could think of a, of a little spring that's spilling over. Think of the words, my cup's full and running over. Or maybe we could change it and think about a flower. Think of the bud of the flower and you watch it for a little time. The, the sunlight's on it. it. It gets water up through its stem. And then the, the little bud begins to open. And, and then it eventually comes into full bloom. And it's lovely. And that's what Paul's thinking about. He's thinking of the need of the church at Philippi. And he recognized the need of the church at Philippi when he asked God that there might be a bubbling up and a spilling over of their love for him. That, that love that was shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Ghost. Isn't it easy to sing, oh how I love Jesus? Say, I love the word of God. The Sabbath day. Oh, we should be in the house of God in the Sabbath day. Love the souls of men. Love the preaching of the gospel. But, but let's be realistic. Isn't it so true that for preacher and people alike, our love for the Lord can wax. It can ebb away. It can wane. It can decrease. Isn't it possible to lose our first love? Not true, Mr. McLaughlin. Oh, it is. Because it's in the Bible. Remember Paul prayed the same prayer for the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2. And the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, came to that church and said, I have something against thee. And what did he got? Thou hast left thy first love. And that's true of an individual child of God, but it's also true of a whole congregation. A congregation could lose its love for God and the things of God and, and the love of the gospel and, and, and no longer be Christ-centered. So it's, it's a good prayer to pray. 
And let's not be content with getting by with just a little love. Because this is not mere emotional love. This is not something that's based in subjective feeling. This is something that's real and genuine. Something that's spiritual. Look at the text. And I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. Look at the words. In knowledge and in judgment. You see, Paul requests not only an increasing love here, but he requests that their love should be governed by knowledge and judgment. And that word judgment means discernment. You see, true love always abounds in knowledge, and I'll explain that in a moment, a certain kind of knowledge, and in discernment. What does the word knowledge mean? Does it mean that you should know someone thoroughly and intimately before you, you decide I'm going to love them? Does it mean that you should enter into the life situation of that person that, that you're, you're, you're going to offer prayer for? So, so you know them in that sense, you walk in their shoes. So you begin to understand where they're coming from and you, you feel their pain. Is that what he means? No. The Greek word actually means a knowledge of God and a knowledge of God's word. You see, I've said it's not a mere emotional love, not, not one that's based on subjective feeling. You see, there's many tell us today inside the Christian church, oh, how we love Jesus. But when it comes down to the doctrinal teaching of the Lord Jesus, oh no, we don't want doctrine. Doctrine's divisive. All we need is love. We've got the love of Jesus in our heart. But notice, it's love that may abound yet more and more in knowledge. And that's the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God's word. And the, the word of God teaches us about the teaching of the Lord Jesus. We need to avoid two extremes. We need to avoid love that's devoid of truth. Isn't there many who, who simply want unity with anyone that names the name of Jesus? And it doesn't matter about their doctrine. They can be wrong and unbalanced theologically. But we love them anyway. But it's love devoid of truth. And of course, here's another extreme. Truth devoid of love. And we can have all the doctrinal boxes text and yet be harsh and critical in our attitude one of another. We can even have a cold heart toward God and Christ and the gospel. Yes, correct in doctrine, a head full of knowledge, but, but with no heart in it. True Bible believe in Christianity has a love for God with all its heart, with all its soul and mind and strength. We said in the funeral service for Olive Swandale on Friday <coughs> that she was a woman who loved the Lord Jesus. And also, not only is a love for the Lord Jesus, but there's a love for thy neighbour. Doesn't the Bible says, love thy neighbour as thyself? And from the heart. So we must love God, because that's the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And love thy neighbour as thyself. And we must do it from the heart. But it's love according to God's truth. Love not based on truth is a delusion. And truth not based on love is a mere arrogance. And Paul knew that there should be 
holy living by the people of God. And he knew how they should be living. So, so he prays for them. And he's not only giving them an example of how to pray for others because he's dealing with that which is truly spiritual first. But he knows that biblical love is not optional. The Lord Jesus said, By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3 and in the uh, 14, verse 14, uh, he, he makes a tremendous statement. He says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. You see, true love is not a warm, fuzzy, sentimental, nice feeling. No, true love is defined by the scriptures. You want to know what love is? Read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. And, and that's not my notion. And that's not the, the church's teaching. Biblical love is never in opposition to the truth of God's word. Biblical love is always in line with the truth of God's word. Biblical tr love brings us to study the character of God, the Christ of God. That's what the knowledge is. It's a deep, intense, spiritual knowledge. And based on the knowledge of God and his word, our biblical love can abound more and more. Notice also it's rooted in discernment. I I'm translating the word in all judgment to have to do with spiritual discernment. Biblical love, of course, is not anti-intellectual. This discernment gives us the ability to understand and interpret and apply God's word truthfully in any given situation. Knowledge and all judgment go hand in hand. And whenever we have biblical love that's based on the truth, in line with sound judgment, then we can grow spiritually. And the knowledge of God and the gospel. And of every aspect of the personal work of Christ. We begin to grow. And grow in biblical love. Isn't this a good prayer to pray? Don't be full of love without the knowledge of God. Don't be full of love without exercising sound judgment. Doesn't the Bible say to the law and to the testimony... If they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no love in them. And many talk about love today, the love of Jesus, the love of God. But it's devoid of the scriptures of truth. And many talk about the truth. But let's bear the danger that truth can be devoid of love. And it can be all in our head. And there's no heart in it. And you could be an unloving and an arrogant Christian even to the saints of God. Isn't the buzzword today love, tolerance, compassion, kindness, equality? We hear a lot about that. Respect. But what do they mean? They mean nothing unless they're rooted in the knowledge of God and sound judgment. We're not to love everyone and everything. We're not to love sin. What we need is love of the highest and the best kind. Love what God loves. Love based on the Bible. 
a love from the heart, a love for others in every aspect of their life without imbalance because it's connected to sound judgment. Now, now that's really just the first thing, the specifics of Paul's prayer. Notice, secondly, the subject of Paul's prayer. Why did Paul pray like this? Remember, he wasn't just praying about the aunt travelling or somebody sick in hospital or somebody that was in pain and hurting, whatever the situation was. Why was he so specific? Look at the subject, verse 10. That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence to the day of Christ. So you remember the last word in verse 9? Judgment. I told you that was discernment. That ye may approve things that are excellent. What, what does that mean? You see, so that you can discern things that's right and wrong. You can know what sin is. We, we know when we're sinning. And we know what sin is not, and we know what sin is. And it's a no-brainer. So, so when we think of right and wrong, we can have that discernment, and we can make a, a moral judgment based on the scriptures of truth. But did you ever think about discerning what is really vital? And what is at the centre, and what's a priority in your life, and, and what you ought to concentrate on, and the things you ought to leave out, and the things you ought to ignore, and the things you ought to put to the one side, that you may approve things that are excellent. In other words, what is best for you? Not only what is good, but, but what is best. Well, what's the most Excellent thing. Don't, don't waste time on trivial things. Be, be focused. Be, be, be single-minded. Remember Mary? You, you think of that home where Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And there's a lot of clamour and clanging going on in the kitchen. And poor Martha, and we love her to bits. And we thank God for her hard work. But she became frustrated. And she's thinking of her sister sitting out there in the front room. If we talk about the front room. And, and she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And just listening to his word. And just thinking, she ought to be out here helping me. And she goes out and says, Master, do you not care? I'm cumbered about with much serving. And she's sitting there doing nothing. And, and then he told us, but, but he has chosen that which is best. That, that which is excellent. Christ was in the midst. And what, what, what ought they have been doing? Sitting at his feet. Because that was the priority. That, that was the main thing. There was time for eating and drinking afterwards. But let's, let's get the word. Let, let's sit at Jesus' feet. Think of these words very quickly. That you may be sincere. That word means integrity. It has to do with truthfulness. It, it has to do with genuineness. If you um, want to test, say, a, a counterfeit um, five-pound note or ten-pound note, I suppose I'm thinking back before it was changed, you'd have held it up to the light and you'd have looked for, for the water line. And if the water line was there, then it was a sound five-pound note or, or ten-pound note. In other words, you held it up to the light. And that's what he's talking about here, being held up to the light. Christ said, I'm the light of the world. Being, being held up to, to the light of his word. And, and, and you're shown to be genuine and true. Think of this word, blameless. And without offence. Isn't that tremendous? In other words, not a double life. Not, not, not an unmixed life. 
Not, not, not without hypocrisy. Not, not to walk without stumbling. Because God looks in the heart. You see, it's all about living out the Christian life. And he wants them to be filled with a holy love for God and the gospel. And he wants them to, to abound, superabound more and more in that love. And here's the reason why, that they may be sincere. So when others look upon them, well, there's a genuine Christian. And we, we talked about Olive and Friday being a, a genuine Christian. Uh, she, she, she was real and true. Uh, uh, and, and without offence. In other words, blameless. Can this apply to husbands? Can this apply to wives? Can this apply to parents? Can this apply to children? Biblical love is a quality. And yet we can grow continually in that quality. Notice also he says here, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. See, true love produces an ever-increasing fruit. Spiritual fruit. You think of a healthy tree. It's discerned by its fruit. In other words, the tree will be spiritually productive. And surely the health of a church, the health of a Christian, there must be spiritually fruit that's being produced. And it's the fruits of righteousness. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 2, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. In other words, we're to be more like Christ. We, 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 we live in Christ. We're in saving union with him. And therefore he's at the centre. And, and we put the important things first. As we have experienced and are encouraged by the gospel. We abound in love in order to be more like Christ, to grow up in him, that we might be fruitful. You see, it's beyond the social, it's beyond the recreational, it's beyond relationship. It's actually spiritual that matters. My heart, my life with God in Christ. And that's the very subject of his prayer. I want you to notice the source of his prayer. He says, which are by Jesus Christ. Now this is a short prayer, but it's a vital prayer. And it's a prayer that we probably pray so little. All about biblical love based on true knowledge, the knowledge of God and true discernment. And it's huge ramifications and we want to take it seriously. And, and how is this possible? How, how can we approve things that are excellent? How can we be sincere without offence till the day of Christ? We can't do it in our own strength and power. Paul, we're not going to do this by ourselves. Thank you very much, Paul, but you've really discouraged us. You've given us good beating this morning, Paul. But it's not by themselves. It's by Jesus Christ. You see, there's the source, the sum of true love, the secret key. It's not produced by the efforts of the saints themselves. It all comes by Jesus Christ. And it's in the ground of the shed blood. And in Christ, of course, they have a new standing. In Christ, they have a new state. And the love of God is put in their hearts. And in Christ, they can grow and develop more and more unto him. Don't neglect Christ. 
Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and the verse 32. He said something lovely and something that's encouraging. And this is what it is. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If we need grace to live, despite our situation and circumstances, where does it come from? If we need to abound more and more in love, Lord, help me to love you more. Help me to love the gospel. Help me to be loyal to Christ. Lord, help me to to grow so that the fruits of righteousness are, are seen in me. You see, he freely gives us all that. He has given us the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's our new standing. We're legally justified. But he also implants righteousness within us. So so the divine life of God is put within us in the new birth. And glory to God, he imparts righteousness. As we die on the sin, the process of sanctification, these fruits of righteousness, this fruit of the Spirit begins to to manifest itself. Could, Could I just say this? Where did Olive's love for the Lord Jesus come from? Where did that joy that you had in the face of impending death? Where did that lovely peace come from that sustained her? It didn't come from Olive. It come by Jesus Christ. And everything we have is by Jesus Christ. He said, without me, ye can do nothing. And, and this is not only for now, folks. This is until the day of Christ. It's right up to his coming. And I want you to notice the summary of Paul's prayer. It's unto the glory and the praise of God. The Bible tells us whatsoever you do, even in eating and drinking, do all to the glory of God. Well, what's the ultimate aim of our existence in the world? What's our purpose? Why has God saved us and left us here on the earth? Here's the answer. It's to the glory of God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. I'm living out my life as a Christian to the glory of God. To the praise of his name. To the Lord be all the glory. Could I encourage you this morning to take these words I want to encourage you to pray over them. I would say to you this morning, please don't ignore them. In spite of our ignorance at what to pray for at times, in spite of our infirmity, we could take these words to the Lord. And yes, it's true that we pray for physical need. It's true we pray for material need for ourselves and one another. And I do that day and daily for you. But in a sense, I've been rebuked by the Lord. Here's a spiritual prayer. The pastor's prayer for his people and he's in prison. And what did he pray for? It's all to do with their spirituality and their progress in Christ and in the things of God. He didn't treat them lightly. He took them seriously and he offered them to God in the name of Jesus for these saints. And I encourage you to do the same thing. May the Lord take these few thoughts this morning.